Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, with a message titled, For the Sake of the Church. So let's turn to our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I think we've all heard of it and talked about it and struggled with a balance. I'm talking about the contrast between the rational part of us and the emotional part of us. And when it comes to decision making, we've all heard of people who make a decision purely on emotion, completely bypassing the intellect, and that usually ends badly. But we've also heard of people who suppress every emotion, making decisions only on rational grounds without asking if the decision they're making is going to be satisfying. And so in decision-making, we're well advised to pay attention to both the emotions and the intellect. You and I might differ on the weight that we give to each, but we know we need to consider both emotion and intellect when we're facing major decisions. I mean, think about the young woman who's falling in love and, and wanting to get married, and she tells you he's amazing. He has no faults, just this fantastic guy. But then you notice, actually, they have so little in common. She spends everything. He's a miser. She's a free spirit. He's a controller. She loves classical music, the theater, the arts. He has no interest in any of that and never has had and probably is not going to have it in the future. Well, you know what I'm getting at? No one wants to deny the wonder of feeling in love, but somewhere along the line, reasonable, rational thoughts have to come into play. Well, not a complete match. This is also true when it comes to, to our spiritual lives. See, once in a while, I've had conversations with people who tell me of the importance of being in the realm of the Spirit, of operating in the realm of the Spirit. You know, at first, I mean, what Christian would disagree with that? But then, after I listen to what they mean, I, I have a sense of feeling uncomfortable. And, and why? Well, for one, I get a sense that what they mean by walking in the Spirit is that they're simply assuming that emotion equals the Spirit. See, I get a sense that they're denigrating the physical creation and the place of the mind and the body. Do you remember Mark 12, verse 30? In that passage, Jesus says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So the heart refers to the command center where all decisions are made. The soul or the spirit is that immaterial part of us that, that will exist after our body dies. And after we die, it is able to consciously go on relating to God and so without going into a definition of the soul here, we at least admit a kind of mystery when we speak of our souls. The mind is our rationality, and the strength is the use that we make of our bodies. Now, I say all of that because when some people speak of walking in the realm of the spirit, they denigrate the body, the rationality, the intellect, in favor of a mystical, deeply emotional, passion-filled relationship to God. Now, furthermore, they tend to think of the intellect or, or academic work as something that's not spiritual. And when it comes to the faith, they, they wait for an, an inner sense of God's leading and pay no attention to the historical, grammatical meaning of a Bible text, considering also the context of a passage. I mean, they kind of think of that as, as a carnal process. Now, look, I'm also aware of people who are only intellectual and care very little for an intimacy with God that contains all the elements of mystery. 
You see, both extremes are wrong, but I think we live in a day in which many people assume that spirituality consists in passions and deeply anti-intellectual inner appetites, and it is this that is deeply valued by many people. They mean that when they speak about walking in the Spirit. Well, quite frankly, that's why some people deeply value the gift of tongues, and this is also why some people deeply distrust the gift of tongues. Someone speaks in a tongue, no one understands, but one group says, praise God, can't you, can't you just feel the Spirit? And, and the other group says, oh, that's what I'm talking about, meaningless sounds reducing the Christian faith to mysticism that's not expressed in rational thought. Now, I know this, this quote is dated, but it was the late Francis Schaeffer who once remarked that if that's what we think the Christian faith is, we might as well put LSD in our communion cups and just go on a trip with the rest of the world. So let's read today's text, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 to 12. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So Paul's using a series of analogies to prove that a lack of meaningful and coherent and rational communication is pointless. So let's follow his line of thought. From verse 6, a verse that I explained in some detail in my last sermon, Paul has argued that at the heart of every Christian church is to be a detailed teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, making the implications plain. If I were to put that in our terms, Paul wants every local church to make a verse-by-verse teaching of the New Testament and the entire Bible as central to the life of that church. He's saying that tongues, or for that matter, any of the many gifts that the Holy Spirit gives are never to be the center of the local church. Paul wants the local church to celebrate the gifts, but the center of the life of the church is to be a teaching of the gospel. Now, when that happens, what are the benefits? Well, let me suggest three benefits. The first benefit is certainty. In other words, Christians are to become certain around the cross. It's not just that the gospel is preached, it is to be preached, but also to be believed, and that in believing, we are the people of God, and we become confident in the truth. We become certain. We know how to answer critics. We we know how to explain to those who want to know. We know how to apply the cross to everyday life. We are certain of it when evangelizing, when, when we're overwhelmed with our own sins, when we're struggling with our doubts, when we're discouraged, when we're lying on our deathbeds. You see, a plain benefit of teaching the contents of the New Testament in a careful, faithful manner, emphasizing the gospel, is certainty. Second benefit, authority. And that is, I'm not only certain about the cross, I'm sure of the basis upon which I am certain. See, one of the signs of a weak Christian is that when you ask a weak Christian about their Bible or God or faith or meaning of life, they'll respond by saying, well, you know, my church believes that, or this is what I've been taught, or this is what I've kind of always believed. Instead, when they become mature, they say, 
Let me show you what the Bible explicitly teaches. See, the basis of their authority is found in the text of Scripture. So what makes for a healthy church? Well, the gospel is revealed as the main thing, and it comes with certainty and authority. Now Paul adds a third benefit, and it's that of emphasis. That is what Paul has committed himself to when he came to Corinth, and he says, it certainly wasn't speaking in tongues. Whenever tongues becomes a central issue in any church, we've departed from the kind of church that God in Christ wants us to have. Now, Paul has said, when I came to Corinth, I was determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he wants the church to learn from his example. They're not to make tongues the main thing. Now, in order to hammer that home, like any good preacher, Paul now gives them a number of illustrations. I simply call this three important lessons every church must never forget. The first lesson comes from verse 7. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So Paul's first illustration is taken from the world of music. And here Paul describes the instrument as being simply, well, lifeless. He means that unless someone plays it, the instrument can't speak. But it makes a real difference about who plays the instrument. I mean, wouldn't you say that? You know, as we all know, not just anyone can make an instrument sound beautiful. It takes endless music lessons as the musician slowly learns with rigorous repetition how to make that instrument produce just the right note. I've always thought of the violin that it either produces the notes of great beauty or it's the most horrible screeching sound that you've ever heard that just doesn't seem like there's anything in between. You're either very good at it or you're very bad at it. So I suppose you have to go through a lot of pain learning how to play before the reward ever shows up. But the reward is what Paul calls distinct notes. Without that, no one knows what's being played, and no difference will ever be made when the person hearing tries to understand what's being communicated. We'll say more about that. Ephesians Volume 1, Empowered Living, God's Glorious Resources, is your free gift this July. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive and have become examples of the incomparable riches of His grace. Yet some of us live in spiritual bankruptcy. Well, the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. How do we access this true wealth? We hear about others who have, but we don't know how to achieve it for ourselves. If you feel the struggle, I have good news. We've been given the book of Ephesians, which provides us the tools for empowered living. This month, we're making Dr. John's series on Ephesians Empowered Living Volume 1 available digitally or on CD free during July. To get your copy, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Music is much more than simply the skill of the musician on his or her chosen instrument. Someone somewhere had a piece of music in their mind and, and they were able to produce that on a musical score. Then a group of musicians are called upon to practice that music, each of them playing not only with skill, but playing with skill in relation to one another. 
Only after all of that has been put together can someone sit down and say, well, that piece of music just makes sense. At no time when you go to hear a symphony or a concert are the musicians simply producing a sound that arises out of their emotions or passions or feelings. What you're hearing, something that, that is overwhelmingly emotional, comes about as the, as the result of discipline and training and submission to the score of music in concert with others. So in a way, this is Paul's first image. It's the image of training. And it would be very tempting for me to go there and make an illustration about how important it is to be trained to get the gospel message right. But Paul has something else in mind as he compares musical instruments with a spiritual gift of tongues. He wants to say the message when the church is gathered must be clear. If people gather for worship and everyone is speaking in tongues, the main thing, the message of the cross is going to be lost. Instead, the message will be on the supernatural character of the gift of tongues, on mystery, to be sure, but not on something that we can comprehend. Now, this was the Corinthian problem, and it's sometimes a problem today. The Bible teaches that we have a healthy church when everyone who has become a part of it can make a distinct sound. And that distinct sound means that they have comprehended the gospel of Jesus and they can articulate it and they know how to live it. What a tragedy it would be if you were a part of the church and attended and got involved and then still did not know the heart of the gospel or how to handle your Bible well. Whatever takes away from the main thing, the message that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself in the cross, well, that would be a tragedy. The message must be clear. Now comes the second lesson, so let's reread verse 8. And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? I suspect that some of us might misunderstand this illustration because we don't really understand the role of a bugler in the military. It might be a surprise to find out that in ancient armies, the bugler was one of the most vitally important roles there were. For instance, in the American Civil War, each bugler needed to produce at the very least 27 different bugle calls and often more. It was absolutely essential for a soldier to be able to recognize the different calls. So, for instance, on the battlefield, it would probably be a very handy thing to know the difference between the call to charge and the call to retreat. See, there were different calls for breakfast, for marching, for for drills, a call to assemble for orders, and for emergency when under attack. Each soldier was required to know exactly what to do when he heard the various calls. A bugle would play and your reaction would have to be immediate. And that's why each bugler had to be an expert in producing a clearly understood tune each time he played, for the lives of countless men were at stake each time he placed the bugle onto his lips. And so how is Paul using this image of the bugler? I think he is saying the call of the gospel must be unambiguous. It's not just that the gospel must be preached and understood and believed. It must demand a response and an unambiguous response. Just like a soldier on the battlefield who must know what to do when the trumpet sounds. I mean, cease fire is very different than start firing. So the person hearing the gospel must know how to respond to the message. What's fascinating to me is that there are many believers who simply do not know how to live or how to respond to the things that the gospel demands. They've not been taught how to respond in the day of battle. 
I'm often discouraged when I speak to someone about either an item of prayer or a matter in which they need certainty, and then I'm going to ask them, tell me about your local church and, and how they're training you. And sometimes I've heard people say, well, you know, actually, I attend a number of different churches. At other times, someone's going to say, well, I don't really attend a teaching church. I just attend a, a lifestyle church or a church that, that emphasizes the gifts or a church that reaches out to the poor or a, or a church that emphasizes social justice. Well, all manner of things can be on the list. So imagine a soldier in battle saying, I actually don't just attend one military unit. I kind of drift between different outfits. And that's because I get something from all of them. But it soon becomes apparent that that soldier never hears a clear call to battle or a clear call of any sort. And here's what must happen. A man or woman must hear the message of the cross, that God loves them, yet they are sinners and have offended a holy and righteous God, so that a wrath-removing sacrifice is required because of the enormity of their sins. That God sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins, and that they, by an act of faith, must surrender their lives to Christ. That is, according to the first important lesson, the message must be clear and they must respond. That can't be where the gospel story ends. An individual must be trained and discipled and called upon to surrender every area of their life to Christ. They have to learn to live like Christians live, to, to pray, to study scripture, to believe God's promises, to obey God's word, to learn to share their faith with others, to learn to use their spiritual gifts in service to others, to live in community with other believers. They've got to have compassion on the poor and, and to bring the life of Christ into every single endeavor, including their jobs. All these are a part of the life of learning to respond to an unambiguous call. See, the sad truth is that many Christians have never learned to respond and wonder why their lives never seem to work and why their faith goes from disaster to disaster. See, the reality is that they have not known or understood a clear and unambiguous call and have not known how to respond. Now we're talking about the main thing remaining the main thing. In Corinth, a congregation enamored with tongues, they had forgotten what the main thing was. I fear that in our world, the simple distractions of the things of this world is preventing some of us from hearing a clear call. So I've said that there are three things we need to learn in order to remain healthy and fixed on the main thing. First, the message must be clear. And second, the response to that message must be unambiguous. And third, unnecessary barriers must be removed. See, that's what we find in verses 9 to 11. That's where Paul says that if you speak in tongues, and if it's not understood, and the meaning's not clear, you're merely a foreigner speaking something that people don't understand. Again, we remind ourselves that a fascination with the gift of tongues had gotten the Corinthians settling for secondary items rather than the main thing. Now, notice the third illustration. It's a matter of different languages. Each language has meaning. Each language has something to say because the gift of tongues is speaking in a real language, and yet it's not understood. It's meaningless to the one who's listening. Notice again verse 11. The word for foreigner in that verse is literally the Greek word barbaros, from which we get our word barbarian. The word is more than just a foreigner. It's a person who seems to be a barbarian in your eyes. 
For those of you who speak more than one language, that image is one you're going to understand. You see, language is much more than simply saying the same thing with different sounds. Language is about culture. It's it's about feeling. It's about certain ways of doing and saying things that can only be understood by, by the person who speaks the same language that you speak. But what happens when you don't understand, when when you're a foreigner? Well, then barriers are erected. That's what language and culture does. It, It erects barriers between people. And Paul says that's what tongues can do. It can erect barriers. Do you see what Paul's doing? Paul's not denying, if you will, the mystical dimension of the Christian faith. He's not denying that tongues are a dimension of the prayer life of some Christians and that it can deeply benefit them. But he's saying the rational, clear, articulate teaching of the gospel is always first. If that piece is not emphasized as the main thing, well, then you're like a musician appearing to play in an orchestra who has not learned your instrument and the score that is set before you. You're like a bugler who has no idea which note you're supposed to sound. You're like an English speaker in an all-Korean-speaking community. Nothing good happens if the emotional, the mystical, or the intuitive, or the spontaneous takes leadership over a clear, distinct, teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That and that only must be the center of our worship. And when it is, we don't have to deny any of the spiritual gifts. John, thanks again for your message today. Uh, I just want to ask you a question of those that would be disgruntled, perhaps, Uh, with us and say that, you know what, there really is no place any longer for any forms of tongue in the church. Yeah, and there are a number of ways that people get to that. And and I think what I've done in my teaching is I've undercut some of those reasons. But in the end, Ben, I find that there's this visceral response to this because immediately uh, people will go to some of the most horrible abuses that they've seen and they'll paint everybody with exactly the same brush. They'll say, look at how tongues have been abused. Isn't it time we just stop using them? And to that, normally I will say, you know, if you want a gift that's been abused, how about the gift of preaching? Ben, I can tell you, heretical preachers and people who abuse the gift and people who play on emotions and don't pay attention to the text of Scripture, I mean, I can't think of a gift that's been given to the body of Christ that has been more abused than that, and yet it doesn't elicit that kind of a, you know, a gut-level response. So I would argue, let's stop responding and just read what the Scripture actually says. John, I think that's great advice. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Recently, Joy, who found us online, wrote to say, I came across Back to the Bible Canada by accident, as it was one of the first sites that flashed up in my desperation to find food for my spirit. Since then, my spiritual walk has never been the same. The teaching of Dr. Neufeld has opened up scripture for me in a way that I've longed for for years, but until now, never experienced. Our goal at Back to the Bible Canada is to ensure that people across Canada are provided the same opportunity as joy. 
Will you help us provide trustworthy Bible teaching to people who are desperate for spiritual food? If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.